So therefore, be proud to be a decent American rather than be just a wanker whipping up fear. Because you're supposed to tackle people, you're supposed to hit people at pace and hit them hard as part of the game. It's not chess we're playing. I'd like to take this chance to apologize to absolutely nobody. The double tap does what the f he wants. Hello, everybody, and welcome along to WTS 118. 118. My name's Danny Murray. My name's Graham Merrigan. How are we? You always do that now, yeah, lady, don't you? Yeah. All right. You did that at the live show. I did. I did. <laughs> I thought it was nerves. A couple of people giggled. A couple of people were, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> All yeah. right. It's yeah. like a late night love zone. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. I'll go for a cross between that and uh, Matthew McConaughey. From? Just Matthew McConaughey. From any particular yeah. movie? Well, just how he goes. All right. Um, he's yeah. not in Wolf of Wall Street as much as he should be. No, he should be in it more. Yeah, yes. yeah. Yeah, we're coming to you from Fitzpatrick Castle Hotel. Go to FitzpatrickCastle.com for more. Um, yeah, Graham, this one we, uh, we're doing a, a phone slash Skype through the magic of internet and the magic of modern day technology. And um, we don't have a guest with us tonight, but we do have a guest joining us through the airwaves. I'm looking forward to this one. Who is our guest, Danny? Our guest. How did it is, come about? Um, our guest is Mike Finkel, okay. who is a writer, author, uh, journalist. With the New York Times? Uh, oh, oh, at one point in time with the New York Times, yeah. Um, and how this one came about was I watched a movie on Netflix starring Jonah Hill and James Franco called True Story, which, funnily enough, Graham... Is a true story. Yeah. And you told me to watch it. I did. In which I did. And um, the, I found the story so fascinating that I googled Mike Finkel, um, became more fascinated by him, and just reached out and said, we'd love to have a little chat with you on our podcast if you'd be up for that. And he said, absolutely I would. Lovely. And hey Presto, here we are. I love when our guest requests go that smooth. Yeah. Yeah, couldn't have went smoother. Genuinely yeah. could not have went smoother. Like the live show guest was the smoothest yeah. process absolutely. In, in history. Um, but... I thought there was a moth in her studio. Yeah, I thought there was something flickering there and I was like, what's going on there? It's it. Um, it's it, man. Is it? It the are, you, are you terrified it's after? Pennywise. Pennywise coming to get us. Uh, you watched that? Are you terrified? Are you, are you all right? If you've seen no. a clown on the street, would you I, panic? I, I, no, I can't wait to watch it again. Okay, that's very good. Brilliant very film. Good. Um, uh, other brilliant films. Genuinely, lads, if you have not watched True Story, it's on the Netflix. Yeah. Check it out. Um, we always get good re- feedback from our Netflix, our documentary recommendations, mm. and that's going into... The WTS recommendation file. Yeah. Um, I don't want to tell you too much about Mike's story because obviously we're going to be talking to him about it. But um, he has a new book out which came out earlier this year called Stranger in the Woods, which chronicles the life and time, chronicles the life and times of Christopher Thomas Knight, who was a hermit who um, left society, essentially, walked away from everything that he knew and wandered into a forest and lived there for 27 years with barely any contact with civilization. It's mental, isn't it? 27 years, like. Something, that happened to someone in Phoenix Park um, as well. 
No, that's just a deer. You were thinking of <laughs> no, someone in Phoenix Park, and he, God bless him, he was um, burnt alive. Recently oh, enough. I remember the case of uh, your man being set on fire. Yeah, yeah very, very enough. sad story. But he was in living in the Phoenix Park. Yeah, as I, for years. I don't think it's exactly the same. In fairness, like the Phoenix Park is a park in a city. Like yeah, but I don't think many people knew about that he was there. Well, no, but at the same time, like it's. I mean, like he wasn't cut off from civilization. Like I mean, yeah. he could he could walk around the corner and be at the number one tourist attraction in the world. Like <laughs> or in, yeah. sorry, in I wasn't comparing them though. No, all so right, sorry. get off your high horse. Well, for I was a just saying, Graham. <laughs> you know what I mean. Um, but yeah, so that, that book is in bookshops now, um, and you can check it out. But we'll be hearing more about that shortly when we speak to Mike. In fact, you know what? No, that's not the only preamble. The 600 gives them enough housekeeping. Let's just go straight to the guest, man. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, Mike Finkel. Um, uh, we've been joined now by Mike Finkel, um, journalist, author, writer, and a man with some incredible stories to tell, no doubt. Mike, thanks, man, for joining us tonight. Thanks, Mike. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Um, so, your, your career obviously is going um, well over, well into three decades now. Um, and some of the stories and people you've encountered across the years have given you material that is incredible, to say the least. Um, we'll, we'll start, I suppose, with your latest book, um, The Stranger in the Woods. How did that happen? Well, you made me feel quite old with uh, mentioning the three decades, <laughs> but it is true. I, I am. I have been a journalist for, I think, 27 years now. I think I started when I was uh, 21 years old, so you guys can do the math at home. But um, yes, the, the, I have been uh, exceedingly fortunate in my career to uh, just follow. I have no real specialty. Uh, I just write about what not just appeals to me, but I get, I, you know, I, I have these crazy obsessions and I'm able to make a living at it. And, uh, so the, yes, you mentioned the, the, the newest book, the stranger in the woods and is about one of the most unusual people I have ever encountered in a career of encountering really unusual people. It's the <laughs> story about a man named Christopher Knight. And then what I'm going to say, every, everything I'm going to say tonight, in fact, uh, about both of my books it, it is completely true, even though there's a lot of unbelievable items in it. This is a, The Stranger in the Woods is a story about a guy who lived completely alone in a small camping tent in the woods of Maine in the northeastern United States um, for 27 years. That's 10,000 nights living outside. He never had a conversation with another person. He never saw a doctor. He never spent any money, saw the internet, made a phone call from the age of 20 to the age of 47, which basically is the heart of your life. You 20 years old, you basically just got out of being a kid and 47 years old is nearly a middle-aged man, completely alone and for food and for things like flashlights and clothing, he broke into these small uh, cabins and second homes around, around these lakes in central Maine. And he broke in in such a way like Houdini, where he would pick a lock very carefully. He never broke a window. He never kicked in a door. He was very careful. He wouldn't touch your computer, your television, your jewelry. He would just take hamburger meat, uh, your flashlights, and uh, all of your books. He loved to read. And... Uh, you know, that's just the basics of this story. He kind of was a mystery. Like the, he was like, he was like the Loch Ness monster of Maine. Like <laughs> people didn't really believe that there was a, a guy that did this. And uh, eventually 
as we'll get into it, he was caught and it would be as if as if like some dinosaur really walked out of Loch Ness. That's how surprised people were. How did he get caught? Like, well, how? so you said there he'd, he'd go through the second homes. Was anything ever reported? Yes. Yeah, so Christopher Knight, as the hermit's n- name is, he left the world at, in 1986 and moved into this very dense patch of forest in Maine. And uh, there's probably 300 cabins in the area. And just very slowly, like every cabin owner has a different story, but it all is generally the same where like, Someone's like, hey, I had a Stephen King novel on my bedside table. I'm sure of it, and it's gone. Wow. And, you know, someone else would be like, I had two flashlights right here. And then someone's like, I'm pretty sure I put two steaks in the refrigerator yesterday, and nobody ate them, and they're gone. But, like, you know, nothing else is missing. You don't really call the police and say, hey, my, my Stephen King novel's missing. You, <laughs> you don't do that. But you also aren't really settled about that. And you're, like, looking around your house. There's no evidence that someone's been inside. So this mystery. And then you talk to your neighbor. And your neighbor's like, well, that's weird because I had like two chickens in the freezer and they were gone. <laughs> and then the third neighbor says, uh, you know, I have no more batteries in any of my appliances. Like they're all gone. And and everyone's like, what is going on? It's like kind of weird. You get little goosebumps. Is it like a practical joke? Because, you know, they're not stealing anything valuable. Is it is it like a neighbor? Is it your, did someone come visit your house and just cook the steaks and not tell you? Like it was just sort of you, you don't really call the police, but you're not settled. It was somewhere in between there. And after a couple of years and dozens of people are saying this, you're like, wow, it was like a mystery. And so the people around these lakes said uh, they made up a story that a guy was living in the woods, breaking into houses invisibly and stealing things. And they called him the North Pond Hermit, but they didn't really believe that that was it. People told me they thought it might have been like a gang initiation, like a group of teenagers. And that was their like little joke that they have to get into someone's house and steal a few minor things and make you feel freaked out. But they just started calling it the North Pond Hermit. But imagine five years, 10 years. 15 years, 20 years, 25 years. I talked to guys who said, you know, oh, when I were eight years old, my grandfather told me hermit stories. And now they're 40 years old and telling stories to their kids. And, you know, it just was one of those things that, like, you couldn't, they called the police dozens of times. And the police had much more important things to do than track down who stole your Halloween candy or, you know, (laughs) why your three AAA batteries are gone, you know. But it also wasn't nothing either. And finally, a game warden named Terry Hughes. I love this guy. He said, you know, listen, on my free time, I'm going to solve this. I am going to get to the bottom of this. And he became obsessed with it. And uh, that was the beginning of the end of the Hermit. I'm happy to talk more about it, but I'll stop babbling for a moment. <laughs> no, no, like it, 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 We're just both kind of sitting back here and we're looking at each other, shaking our head, because as you said, like some of the things you're saying are kind of unbelievable. The fact that this went on so many years and then almost this kind of mythological figure of the the, the north pond hermit as, as he became known came, came to be like it it's it's crazy but as you said then this this guy uh terry did you say his name was terry hughes the game warden the you know yeah. uh, a real like law and order kind of guy he's the person who became uh, obsessed with solving this mystery it it's almost like a, a it almost sounds like a bad tv show do you know like this guy just becomes obsessed with with ca- with catching uh, the, the the hermit and uh, he he eventually does catch him and uh, Christopher does time in prison and that's when you meet him is that right? 
Yes. Yeah, so, you know, Terry Hughes, this law and order guy is like, you know, there's something going on out here. There's, so, you know, it's not just a myth. There are things missing from houses. This isn't the, this isn't, you know, the, the, the Yeti, the Himalayan Yeti. There is actually something there. Maybe, well, maybe there is a Yeti. Who knows? Um, and, you know, he, he has set up this elaborate trap with electric eyes in the forest and all this stuff from, uh, you know, high tech security stuff. And yes, long story short, he caught the hermit stealing hamburger meat and cheese from a summer camp that was closed for the season and put the hermit in jail. But I have to tell you, Terry Hughes, after meeting the hermit, so basically this whole mystery that had gone on for 27 years, it turned out to be true. And I cannot tell you how startled the people of central Maine were that this thing that they made up, the truth was stranger than the myth. They were like, what? A guy actually did live out there for 27 years? He never lit a fire because smoke would not keep his campsite away. He learned to walk in the woods like a, it was like a ghost. Uh, Terry Hughes, the the game warden who caught him, was led back to his secret site uh, that the night that he was caught. It was, he's the only known person who ever walked in the woods with Chris Knight. And when I talked to Terry Hughes, this law and order man, like, I just saw his eyes grow wide. He told me that he thought Terry Hughes thought he was a forest expert and that he has to tip his hat. He met the God of the forest, the King of the forest, the way this guy could move through the woods. And this is dense forest. I cannot overstate how thick and horrible the forest that Chris Knight lived in. It's, it's like a Brillo pad. It was that thick. There was thorns and boulders and not just boulders, like the size of vehicles scattered everywhere. And I, I mean, I'm a decent walker in the woods. I, I spent much of my life uh, camping out and I sounded like a bull in a china shop. And this guy could walk silently without leaving a footprint, rock, root, rock. He wouldn't snap a branch. He would duck and weave. And Terry Hughes, the guy who caught him, basically admitted to me that he wished he hadn't caught him, which is a pretty powerful wow. thing. This you know, has was never had a weapon, was like completely like incapable of lying. Like as soon as he was caught, he admitted to everything he had ever done. And uh, anyway, as you mentioned, guys, uh, he was put in jail, which is, as you can imagine, a guy who had just lived 27 years with utter freedom in the forest is now locked in jail. And we're like, by the way, on page like 10 of the book. Like, I, you know, it's like <laughs> yeah. the story gets so crazy that I haven't given anything. I mean, basically, you know, this is all just the big, the, the introduction. And that is exactly uh when i but you you met him in jail mike yeah so the you know uh he was christopher knight was arrested and put in jail and as you can imagine it was um it's catnip to journalists think about it you have a a, 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 this mysterious legend that uh, you know comes true and then you have a guy who says the most unbelievable story lived in a tent no fire no internet no speaking you know highly intellectual it's like it all you know it's unbelievable and of something like 500 journalists tried to get in touch with them. And um, I was really fortunate that I'm the only one that he responded to. Wow, and, wow. Uh, you know, there's some degree of luck. and But the way I first reached out to him might be the reason why he responded. Uh, you know, when I, was a, <laughs> when I was a little boy and I had like a birthday party, my mom, <laughs> bless her, although at the time it was a pain in the butt, said to me, oh, you have to write a thank you note to everybody who gave you a gift, and you have to write it by hand on a little card and mail it. And I was like, this is the biggest pain in the ass ever. But people responded to that, and there's something about a personal note. And so when it came to Chris Knight, think about it, the guy who was obviously not into technology, 
you know, never even yeah. saw the internet or made a phone call. I decided I'm going to write them a letter by hand. And I put pen on paper. They used to have these things called envelopes and stamps. And um, <laughs> I, I mailed it to the, to the Kennebec County Jail where he was being held. And I think I might have been the only journalist to actually hand write a letter. And lo and behold, the hermit wrote me back. And I remember vividly. Walking out to my mailbox, I uh, was living at the time in Bozeman, Montana, which is also another wintry sort of uh, rural part of the United States, uh, like like the state of Maine. And uh, I opened up this first letter, and it was like there were some of the first words that this guy had shared with anyone in the world for 27 years. And it wasn't a very long letter. He wasn't. A, he's not a man of many words, as you're probably not surprised to hear. But literally, right from that first letter, I knew several things. That first of all, he was really intelligent like he used words beautifully and I you know I'm a writer so it touched my heart he obviously had a great mind he was smart he had a funny little sense of humor he even made you know I told him I liked Ernest Hemingway and in my first letter to him and he sort of said well I feel rather lukewarm about Hemingway like the guy who you know says nothing for 27 years is suddenly willing to engage in a little <laughs> literary criticism and then the third thing I knew right from the first letter is that this man had one hell of a story to share and uh and then i was i was hooked right away it's it's, it's absolutely crazy like the the entire thing when when i when i when i came across the the, the story myself i was even uh, just baffled by uh, like somebody being able to exist i mean we're from ireland so when we say a forest or, or a woods i mean it's usually at most 10 minutes to do our side like we, <laughs> yeah. we don't have big forests or big uh, woods at all like so when you're describing one so dense and even though you said a, a couple of minutes ago that like he wouldn't even light a fire for fear that smoke would maybe attract people to the campsite or, or give him away and it's the northeast of, of the US like I can't imagine that the winters were all that kind you know not only the northeast um, this is the state of Maine which is uh, borders up with Quebec and uh, Canada uh, up, up in Canada and they have incredibly harsh winters uh, they're very they they snow comes in late october early november and um it doesn't melt out until april or may and it's just it's not even the cold it's a wet cold it's windy and then even the summers which you think would be you know a little break from it if some people think the summers are even worse because there's just immense swarms of black flies and mosquitoes and so it's not easy living any time of year mm. but you know and we can get into the big questions like why did this guy go i'm waiting for you to ask me these things but yeah. uh, but uh, but he lived through all of this and again i'm I, I think i mentioned this earlier like everything here is true he didn't live in other cabins and you know i, I searched and searched for just one tiny you know, piece of evidence that would prove that his story wasn't correct. And I even had, you know, hired researchers and, uh, you know, talked to lawyers and had the police read everything over. And the man's story is, is, is unbelievable and true at the same, at the same time. He is one of the toughest individuals you will ever meet in terms of like physical toughness and also one of the smartest and one of the strangest Was altogether. The, did he have any family, Mike? Yeah, he, Chris Knight grew up in central Maine, actually not too far from where he hid out from the world. He came from a, I guess you're not surprised to hear this, somewhat of an unusual family. He has uh, four older brothers and one younger sister. And uh, it's a very like sort of almost a storybook sort of family where all of the children 
were highly intellectual. They all got amazing grades at school, but at home they learned how to fix everything electrical, automotive, plumbing, the family, uh, according to friends that spend time in the house, the inside of the house was like a library. They would read books, they studied physics, you know, they read Shakespeare, and yet they, you know, had almost no money and they repaired everything themselves. So it's just weird and were extremely private. Uh, oddly enough, when Chris Knight went missing, the family did not contact the police. They didn't file a missing persons report. Now, from what I understand, what? they may have hired a private detective. Yeah, he was 20 years old, so not in their family, uh, you know, beliefs, not a child anymore. And um, I talked to a couple of the older brothers very briefly, and they said they told their mom, you know, he was off having an adventure. But obviously, after a while, they all assumed he had died. But they never contacted the police. And I even asked a local police wow. officer. Central Maine, like, were you surprised that they didn't call you? And the police officer said to me, no, I'm not surprised. It's sort of a, a trait of, in this part of the world, in Maine, rural Maine, and it's a rural state, and this is a rural part of a rural state, uh, where people keep to themselves, they don't air their dirty laundry, they didn't want to scream that, hey, we have someone missing, everyone look for him. They didn't even know where to start looking. They didn't even know if he was in, you know, in, in, in Maine or, you know, gone to California. And so... Um, they had no clue where he was for 27 years. In fact, when Chris Knight was arrested, he assumed both his parents were dead. But his father had died 12 years earlier. He was actually listed as a survivor in the obituary, although the family had no idea. And he, he did see his mother again after being missing for 27 years. Wow. But went missing, but not that far from the family home. Uh, yeah. Like, did he obviously explained in his reasoning, and I suppose you said it yourself, you're waiting for us to ask, and, and we'll jump to it. Like, what was his reasoning for heading off into the woods? Yeah, I mean, listen, you're talking about a guy who, who left the world for 27 years. So, I mean, one of the big questions is why? You know, how did you survive? That's really interesting. We can get into the nuts and bolts of it. A lot of it's in the book, like all of his survival methods. But why? Well, the answer to that, of course I asked that question, is both, I think, simple and, and, and a little bit profound. You know, this is a guy who told me, you know, all of his life, and remember, he left at age 20, so he's talking about his young life, high school, and even earlier, he just was extremely uncomfortable around other people, and there are people like that. And I talked to many of his classmates at school, and they said, yeah, he was a quiet, shy guy, but I didn't think he was, you know, if you're asking me, man, I wouldn't want to go back to that age. I, You know, I was a little... I'm still a little dorky, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I was <laughs> uncomfortable in my own skin. Um, and he had this idea that he would go and live in the woods. And so the, he told me that there was no, like, I said to him, you know, you must have committed a crime. You might be embarrassed about something. Did you, you know, this was the, this was the uh, mid-80s in this rural part of the United States. Maybe you were confused about your sexuality, something specific. And he said to me, it was nothing like that at all. It just was this tug, which he sort of described as this gravitational pull to be alone. So why did he leave the world? Because he had this just very crazy idea of how he wanted to live his life. And he basically tried to fulfill his dream more fully than probably most of us ever will. He went to the woods, he abandoned his car, he walked into the woods, and he just left the world because he felt extremely strongly that that was the right thing to do. Now, that might be why he left, but why did he stay for 27 years is even more interesting, and I will answer that very quickly and kind of 
this is where it got really interesting when talking to him. Why did he stay? And I mentioned the bugs and I mentioned the cold and I mentioned he didn't write a, light a fire or see a doctor. But he expressed to me this amazing contentment. He loved his life in the woods. He was really content, happy. He left the world because he wasn't comfortable and he stayed hidden because he liked it. Wow. I know. Like, I don't know. For me, I'm I'm not much of an outdoorsman. I'm not much of a camper at all. So for me to, to imagine anybody saying they were that content, living that isolated away yeah. from technology, I'm kind of like, this This guy has balls on him, you know? But um, did, did he have any kind of, did he have any issues in, say, high school or anything like that with kind of friends and stuff like that? Did he have friends? I mean... The, the short answer to that is no, but I spoke to people who hung out with him a little and they said he was a quiet guy, you know, a friend of his that they went fishing together, you know, which is kind of a quiet activity. He's smart. Like when I met him in the jail, you know, he's one of the most intelligent, if not the most intelligent person I've ever met. I was like, uh, I, I wasn't as smart as him. I was daunted by, you know, he could talk about any book he'd ever read, like he had a photographic memory and then he could talk about, you know. He came up with these ingenious systems for survival. Remember, leaving the world at age 20 means that he never got advice from an elder for his, basically his whole life. He figured everything out on his own and, and, and survived. Didn't he? Not, not just survived, came out of the woods extremely strong and um, healthy. Uh, you know, in, in not seeing a doctor or a dentist for 27 years is very hard to get your head around. And yet he did. And not just living in a cushy existence, living like one of the most harshest existences you can imagine and never got sick. Like that's I mean, people's people's belief crumbles like at certain points. And, and for a lot of people, it was this no doctor thing. For, you know, some people it's like, no way did he not light a fire? For me, it was like, no, I couldn't believe that nobody came across his campsite or how did he survive in the winters? And, you know, we went over everything point by point and he not only had an answer for everything, it was like. A very clearly correct and precise answer, you wow. know. And, and just to just to hit the surface, you know, no, how how could you not get sick for twenty seven years? Well, I will answer that because I talked to a lot of doctors. You know what gets you sick, uh, Danny and Graham? You know what really makes you sick? We get each other sick. We pass germs around each other, shaking hands, hugging, kissing, all these things that we like to do. Sometimes we get each other sick. If you separate yourself from the human race. You don't get any of our bacteria. You don't get any of our viruses. You could still get something like cancer, but you really don't get sick. And many doctors said that, that if he was really, you know, separated from the rest of the world, which he clearly was, then it's not surprising that you can go all that time without getting sick. Um, he insulated himself. Crazy. Was he ever stuck? Was he ever, ever stuck for food? Like, did he, how, how often did he have to go on, on these kind of little missions to get food? Like, where did so he Chris store the food? Yeah, so he uh, spent about the first six months of his escape from the world sort of wandering the woods of Maine until he found this amazing spot in the in this very dense patch of forest, but not a, not a wild wilderness, uh, just a dense patch of forest that was, you know, I think I described, uh, you know, as thick as a Brillo pad and carved out this extraordinary room in the woods and I found this place that he lived for 25 plus years and it is incredible it's like it even has like a ceiling overhead which is just made out of tree branches linked just imagine carving a, a cube the size of a bedroom out of like dense jungle and that's sort of what it looked like and there were a couple of hundred 
small cabins around these lakes in central Maine. They were mostly second homes, usually open only in the brief summer, but people kept things in their pantries, a little bit of food around. And about every two weeks during the non-winter season, so during about six or seven months a year, he would have to go and on what he called a thieving raid. He would pick a lock, fill up his backpack with um, food supplies in a cabin that he knew still had food around. You know, he would make sure he didn't see anybody and that it was, uh, you know, no one was around. And uh, but during the winter, he wouldn't leave his site at all. And the reason is he never wanted to make a single footprint. And even though he was an expert walker in the woods, when there's a thick layer of snow everywhere, you can't help but leave a boot print. And so just before the first snowfall of the season, he would do a, a bunch of quick thieving raids where he would go almost every day and stockpile just enough food to get him through the long winter. And sometimes he literally wouldn't leave this room in the woods for six months. And he was very touch and go towards the end of winter. Like a grizzly bear. out of food. <laughs> like a great no. In fact, that's a very smart comment because he compared himself to animals all the time and he meant it as a compliment. Animals do the same thing. They, they gorge themselves. They don't usually break into cabins to steal food, but they, you know sometimes <laughs> bears do. Um, he gorged himself on food and then sort of let his fat reserves slowly be eaten away during this long winter. And he said to me, like, you know, there were some times when inter en winter ended when he was on the verge of starving or freezing to death and he was so committed to this isolation that he would he had decided that he would rather die out there in the woods than, than ask for help wow and no. even even something as simple as as cooking because one of the things you mentioned that he'd robbed from the pantries was um hamburger meat what was he eating that raw or he had a very small camp stove like a little uh two burner stove that he connected oh, to uh yeah to uh, like uh, like he would steal um propane tanks off of uh, barbecues occasionally and he never used that to heat his tent because you don't want to put gas inside your tent but he did use it to cook a little food but for the most part he told me he used this gas to melt snow for drinking water it was so cold that everything was frozen and uh, that was the main use of these stolen propane tanks he would uh you know, we can talk about winter survival. I find it's really fascinating. You know, it, it's yeah. hard to imagine how cold it is and how you survive in that cold without a fire. I mean, wow, it's, oh, it's crazy. <laughs> I'm just thinking yeah. about it. You know, it's like it's it's incredible. Have you heard of um, Bear Grylls, Mike? Excuse me. Have you heard of the Bear. what would you call them, Danny? And then, Bear Grylls, yeah. Bear, Bear Grylls, Grylls yeah. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like survive. it sounds like um, this hermit has a lot more than Bear Grylls ever had. Yeah, yeah and, uh, you know, I think that, uh, you know, if I talk to Chris Knight about Bear Grylls, you know, they, you know, it wasn't just the survival thing. Bear Grylls is, is like a showman who wanted to sort of, you know, be, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. I'm here talking on your show. You have a show. But Chris Knight was so private, like, in a weird way, and I'm happy to talk about this too, he, he had decided he was going to live his entire life in the woods, was going to die in the woods, was going to let nature, you know, sort of like have its, you know, claim his body and be subsumed back into the soil and no one would ever know his story. And, uh, you know, it was just that he got caught by, you know, by a police officer breaking in. And he, I have to say, you know, I don't know if Chris Knight is going to listen to this podcast, though, you know, he <laughs> likes the radio. Uh, if he does, I really want to say that I cannot thank him enough 
for he gave me, Chris Knight, the hermit, gave me the most valuable thing he owned in the world, which was his story, and shared it with me and asked for nothing in return, no money, no favors, nothing except for one thing. You know, people are saying, well, why would he tell you this story? The only thing he asked me was that when he was done telling me what he wanted to tell me, and he did not answer all my questions. He's a hermit after all. He could be quiet for 27 years. I'm not going to force the man to, to speak. You know, he's a very intelligent guy. He told me what he wanted to tell me. And he said, I will, I'm not your friend, Mike. That's what he said to me. I don't want to hang out with you anymore. Please go away. He's a true hermit. And I did. Wow. Wow. I think that Chris Knight realized you know, when 500 journalists tried to get in touch with him, that if he didn't speak to someone, he would be hounded for his story all his life. And, you know, as I said, he's a bright guy, like a chess player in his mind. And using what I think of sort of game theory, he realized that if he told his story one time to one person and then retreated, like that book is sort of like a wall. Like if you want to know about him, you can read the, the book. And he I'm happy to report, lives now in Maine. And so, so far as I know, I haven't been in touch with him. He didn't want to hear from me. And nobody else has really disturbed him. And um, that's kind of what he wanted. So are, that's because I was going to say, are you still in touch with the guy? But that that's that's astonishing that I think it's a fair request, as you said, coming from a hermit. Right. You know, of, you know, you asked me, am I in touch with him? Well, he's such an interesting person. And, you know, if you read the book and you like Chris Knight, that's fine. And if you read the book and you dislike him, he wasn't a thief, that's also fine. I, I tried to write the book as neutral as possible, but I do have, I speak warm, warmly of him because I was impressed by many things. You know, I'm not a thief. I totally understand how intrusive it can be to have, you know, there were plenty of, especially like women and there was young children, you know, in these lakes where people would tell me I never had a comfortable night and I, you know, I worked really hard my whole life to be able to afford a little get away and this guy robbed my peace of mind and he never worked for a living and so that's a valid that's a valid argument where other people said you know second time you you know i had stuff missing i saw all the valuables were still there and you know my freaking block of cheddar cheese was missing i understood that this you know if i ever caught him i would just let him go i knew you know and so everybody had different reactions and i really liked that and i tried to capture that mm. in, and in the book he's such a polarizing figure did um did in in terms of meeting um, Chris and I did, did you only ever meet him while he was um, in prison? Great question. So we started our relationship by I told you I wrote him a letter by hand, and so we started our relationship really in a nice way for a hermit, a shy person, which was just the old fashioned way. We hand wrote letters back and forth while he was in jail, and as you can imagine, as I said before, uh, you know someone who just had been really. F- free to live their life exactly as they wanted to in the forest is now locked in a cage with another person. You know, that's, that, that makes you suffer. Then I met with him in jail and the very first time was just so uncomfortable. You know, he didn't want to make eye contact. We literally sat silently for five minutes and Danny and Graham, I bet you if we just sat silently for like two minutes, it'd be everyone would be turning off this podcast. <laughs> yeah, <It's> just, yeah. <laughs> silence is uncomfortable. <laughs> and, um, but when he finally like got a little more, I would never say he got comfortable with my presence, but he decided uh, that he would share something with me. And when he spoke, it was really like he wait, he was very precise about what word he used. You know, even though he hadn't talked in 27 years, he read so many thousands of books that his brain was sharp. And uh, you know, people another point of disbelief that people would say is like, oh well, how could you talk after you're not talking for 27 years? Well, language doesn't 
lives in your throat, it lives in your brain, and his language centers were perfectly developed after reading those books. He spoke beautifully. Yeah. And um, yeah, and so at, even after he was released from jail, he only spent seven months in jail. And you know, the United States can be quite a harsh place uh, in terms of jail time. One break-in, even if you don't steal anything, just breaking some into someone's house without authorization, you can get 10 years in prison for one Wow. And he admitted to more than a thousand. So life imprisonment was a possibility. And so he only spent seven months, which both sides, you know, it was just sort of this like exception to the rule. And so I'm, I'm you know, I'm happy to report that they, they didn't really lock this dude up. He never had a weapon. Yeah. And I did meet with him after he was released from jail also. And, you know, one of the one of the one of the great questions in the book was, you know, what happens to a guy who like lived completely outside of society for 27 years and then suddenly is like pulled out of that woods and thrown into our, you know, fast paced 24 seven stare, you know, stare at the screen, internet, text message society. What happens to a person like that? It's so interesting. Yeah. And you kind of touched on it a little bit anyway, but did, did you talk to him or, or did he give you his feelings at all about like, you know, going from being completely isolated to then being in, you know, a, a, a six foot by ten foot cell or whatever it was with a, a, another human being twenty four seven. Um, I, 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 I think that one of the reasons why I feel warmly about Chris Knight was that he, this is what he said about that. He said, "Mike, I deserve it. I stole things from people. I wasn't raised that way. I knew what I was doing was wrong every time." And I deserve to be here. I broke the law repeatedly. And so he, that was his, that was his reaction to it. Like he was wow. never like, oh, I'm furious. You know, I, he said, I deserve it. And then I said to him, how are you doing? And he said, listen, you know, he was able to survive these incredibly harsh winters, literally in a small space in the woods. And he said he could sort of access his like survival mode and was able to survive jail. And in a very strange sort of way, being released from jail, and I'm not going to give away the ending to the book. I'm just going to tease people. But being released from jail was almost more traumatic to him than being locked in jail where there's routine and regulation. Suddenly he's tossed in society and everything's brand new. And that was even more challenging to him. Wow. Um, as we said, the book is called The Stranger in the Woods. And it, it came out earlier this year. And um, we definitely, definitely recommend people buy it. But I suppose to, to kind of to take a little bit of a sidestep, um, sure. uh, the the prison kind of connection and in a kind of weird segue plays a part in <laughs> your yeah. other book. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great segue, Mike. Yeah, <laughs> stretching a little bit there, I think was. Yeah. Well, the character is also named Chris too in the. Uh, yeah, other yeah, book. that's also true. That's also true. Um, the. True story. Some people may be familiar with the story through the, the, the movie starring Jonah Hill and uh, James Franco. But but the story in itself is... Bizarre. Bizarre and crazy, to say the least. As if the one I described wasn't, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's wrong with you, Mike, and bizarre stories? <laughs> That's my wife. She doesn't know either. <laughs> I, I'm attracted to unusual... Uh, stories to say the least. Yeah, I yes. can't wait to see what comes next. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, 
my I've only written two books. I write mostly magazine stories because I I mean walk into any bookstore and you you won't say oh the world needs more books. Like I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I wait until I have a story that is just you know you 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 can decide whether or not you like my writing. You know some people like it, some people don't. But I'm telling you these stories are just off the hook crazy and need to be told. So I wait until I have like the craziest story and then i write a book other than that it's just magazine articles for me so that's why i'm a slow book producer only two in 15 years mm. uh, but the first book is called true story and it's a tongue-in-cheek title it's about a pathological liar but more than that it's about a man who is accused his also his name is chris like the hermit so his name yeah. is chris so we'll just call him chris the murderer the the first book is about a guy who is accused of possibly the most heinous crime you can imagine accused which is killing his wife and his three young children and he he's an american guy and he fled to mexico which is a pretty common thing for a criminal to do across the border and while uh across the border uh, my name is mike finkel as you may recall he took on another identity he told everyone that his name was mike finkel and the story gets even more complicated where i was a reporter for the new york times magazine and i was fired for screwing up a story for falsifying a few details i got i got in trouble and i got fired and at the same time this guy walked around in mexico telling everyone his name was mike finkel and he was a reporter for the new york times magazine and seemed to be doing such a good job of pretending to be me like he actually hired a photographer ended up sleeping with her and he did a better job of being me than i ever did a <laughs> uh, frankly um and yeah, I, again, this is like, by the way, if anyone's listening here, uh, 100% true. It sounds like a bad fiction, but it's actually incredible true story where he gets arrested again by the police and taken back to Oregon in the northwestern part of the United States. And he's the guy, the, the guy who probably murdered his family. We don't know for sure at this point. And uh, he decides that the only person he'll talk to is the real Mike Finkel. And I had just you know, had a career explosion meltdown and suddenly I'm in the middle of this spectacular murder mystery case and uh, I didn't know how I feel about this guy and he tells me, I meet him in jail, you know, I love these jail meetings, Chris <laughs> Longo, the murderer, not Chris Knight, the hermit, and by the way, these two guys couldn't be more different, one of them, the murderer is a complete psychopath, lying bastard, the other one's like the gentlest soul ever, but, you know, um, Chris Longo, the murderer, says to me, Mike, I know you just lost your job and I know you can't make any more mistakes you know, ever again or you'll probably never write again. And so I'm going to give you the greatest story you've ever heard. I'm going to prove to you that I'm innocent. And I said, go ahead. And that started it. Uh, it's, <laughs> where, where do you start with this, Mike? Um, I, watched, I watched the movie, um, which I absolutely love the movie. Um I suppose, did you, did you, are you, were you happy with the movie, Mike? I think that's a difficult question for me to answer. Um, you know, uh, this, the, the story about the murderer really creeped me out to say the least, you know, this guy took on my identity and then I'm not going to give away that much, but I'm going to tell you right now and to all your listeners, this guy is guilty and did murder his wife and his three children. And that is a very disturbing thing. Like I met with this guy, I, on some level, 
became friends with him and I have a wife and three kids. And so it really like twisted my mind because the truth is that this guy is like the murderer seemed on the surface to be like the sweetest, nicest, funniest, intelligent. Like if he was on the phone too, he'd be making funnier jokes than me. He's like really great at like being personable. You'd be like, let's go get a beer. And like, he had never been accused of a violent crime in his life. And there, I've talked to people who went to the same church as him. And they, you know, some of these women told me, even after he was arrested, that I used to tell my husband, why can't you be more like Chris Longo? Why can't, you know, so it was like, Jesus, wow. It was this weird, like, sensation that someone pulled the rug out from under me. Like, how is it possible for a guy that seems this nice and calm to suddenly murder everyone you know? So it's very creepy. But some people will say, you know, he's a psychopath, basically, he's a psychopath. And some people will say, you know, when you encounter someone like evil like that, you should turn away. And I say, uh-uh. I say you should look them right in the eye and see what you can learn, because maybe you can prevent that from happening to another family. And I looked him right in the eye for hours, and I'm creeped out by the whole experience, because he, I mean, the story is called True Story. He just lied to me in the most elaborate it was like a cat and mouse game. And it was like a year of my life trying like running in circles, dealing with this highly intelligent, complete psychopath. And so uh, that's a very long answer by saying I'm so emotionally fucked up by this story (laughs) that uh, I can't like, I've watched the movie maybe four times. And like, if you can imagine me like watching it through the slits of my fingers, it's like such an emotionally wrenching story to me that I can't even tell you whether the movie's good or bad i can't it's of every movie that's ever made that's the one i have no judgment of because it's so screwed up to me but i can say that i think james franco is a really good actor like he he caught he captured chris longo the murderer's sort of coldish deadish but yet also like personable i think he captured him well and uh, Mm. jonah hill is mostly known for comedic roles is also quite a good serious actor i think he won i think the only two times he's been nominated for an oscar were for serious roles and like money ball a wolf of Wall Street, and so he also has some good, serious chops. So yeah, I'm happy with the way the movie came out, but I can't judge it. It's too, it screws me up too much, as you can imagine. Yeah, but, big uh, time. absolutely, and and that's something I was going to maybe ask about because I suppose the the the, the biggest difference between um, the, this story and um, the Chris Christopher Knight story is that you're kind of front and center in a way um, in this one. So. Obviously, as you said there, like th- this is emotionally wrenching for you, this, this entire story. So you were going through turmoil in your professional career um, because, uh, you know, as you said, you embellished details in a story for the New York Times. You you lost your job. Journalism is a career that's based on a reputation almost. So you're facing down the barrel of reputational damage that you may never come back from. And yet there's this carrot almost being dangled in front of you with the greatest story ever from this lunatic essentially it it must have been just absolutely mind-blown for you to even try and work out what's what with that i i, I think that's a I, i'm going to use that in, in my next interview i'm going to steal what you just said <laughs> I mean, exactly it was um, and, and then not only am I dealing with a complete psychopath, but I'm dealing with a highly intellectual one who sort of read that situation. So remember, you know, listen, I, I, I'm not, uh, not proud of screwing up, but, you know, life is like that sometimes. You, you, I make mistakes and I make more than most and I paid a pretty heavy price by getting fired. And this guy, 
this guy, the murderer, the psychopath, Chris Longo, he knew what I was going through and manipulated me. And I'm like, and I feel like I'm a smart guy. And I'm like, I know he knows. And I know he's trying to manipulate me. And I'm going to not let him manipulate me. And he knew that I knew. And it was like this crazy thing where I felt like I was playing a chess game and wasn't winning. And um, <laughs> and I said, oh, I know he wants me to write that he's innocent, but I'm you know, only going to write what the truth is. And it was this, you know, and I tried to capture all this, not only the, the actual story, but sort of the mm. turmoil in the background in the book. But you're right. I did play a... Uh, you know, I, I couldn't help it. He took on my name and my identity. And I, you know, I would never have been in contact. I never want to spend time with a murderer like that again. I'm yes. done for life. What was your, <laughs> <laughs> what was your, when you first heard that, that, that this guy had assumed your identity, what was your initial reaction? Right. So again, uh, this just doesn't seem true, but it is, you know, I had literally, as you mentioned, you know, I dreamed all, I'm, I'm one of those guys who's known what he's wanted to do almost all his life. I just wanted to be a journalist. I just wanted to travel the world and write about it. And I love to write and I like to travel. And so I had my dream job and I just lost it. And then I get a call from a like the, the, the like a, a reporter who says you know he wants to speak to to Mike Finkel and I'm just like oh you're gonna write about how I just got fired and screwed up my career and he's like no I'm calling about the murderer and I was like what and it was actually a reporter who told me that yeah they just uh, arrested a guy who was on the FBI's ten most wanted list at the time you know the same list that Obama uh, uh, Osama bin Laden sorry <laughs> we've Osama all made that mistake <laughs> sorry Osama bin Laden was on and. Uh, you know, he's the 10 most wanted murderer. And, you know, and then he's like, yeah, they captured him and he told everyone it was your name. And then so my first reaction was, nah, it's just not true. And then my second reaction was, I got to get in touch with this guy. What the hell? And uh, as with the hermit, you know, the reporter said, yeah, we take a, take a backseat to that one. Everyone's trying to get in touch with this guy. Uh, he's not talking to anyone. And I... He obviously wanted you though, Mike. It was... Uh, yeah, you know, and, and again, I hope I don't creep out any of your listeners here, but the thing is, like, I felt, I guess I could say this, I felt weirdly indebted to this guy because he gave me the greatest story I ever had up to that point. I think The Stranger in the Woods might on some level be more interesting, but up to that point, like, I just at the moment when I thought I might never be, be able to be a journalist again, he gave me this great story, and so I felt weirdly I can't say thankful, but I can't not say it either. Like, yeah, like he, yeah. you know, it's like, damn, you gave me like you get career resurrection, like the chance to write a book. Like it became a movie. Like I, I restarted my career, my life. And so like he knew that. Did he, he know it. of the of the second from the New York Times? No, he didn't. Okay. Until I wrote him my very first letter. But the guy, as I mentioned, see, I'm, I guess I'm I think what makes a good character in a book is is real intelligence. You know, if you're just if you're just kind of a dull person, I just don't think you're going to resonate in the pages of a book. And uh, he, I told him this, and I think this guy, the psychopath, the murderer, it's like, ha ha, I have got a leg up on him because he knew that if he told, it took any other journalist to tell his story, they wouldn't feel so indebted to him. They would feel superior. But he, he was able to, like, even though I was aware that he was going to try and manipulate me, he's still such a smart dude that I told you I was, feel like I was being outplayed. He sort of knew the rules of the game before I did. And, uh, again, this is all sort of outlined in the, in the book itself. So it's not just a murder mystery. It's more like a – it's not a whodunit because you're pretty sure whodunit. It's more like a why done it and a how done it. And the, 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 
I, I just find that whole element of um from from the time that you lose your job the New York Times to the time where uh this guy is portraying uh, he's saying he's you in Mexico um I mean you're the the movie portrays that you're kind of you're looking for work you're you're trying desperately to get a job and then next minute you get a phone call with this news was what what were you thinking forget as well as forget about the movie for a side but what were you thinking when that call came in were you thinking opportunity or were you thinking what the hell is this man doing a murderer um using my name for well you mentioned earlier that uh, you know pretty much one of pretty much the most uh, important thing that a journalist has is his reputation, his name. We certainly don't have a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, we're journalists, but uh, <laughs> um, and uh, I, I I lost that, and I had spent like you know 15 years ascending this ladder from you know very really small and not very good newspapers up to the New York Times, and not just the New York Times, the magazine section, which I thought was the best because you could write, you didn't have to file a story every day. You could spend two months working on one story, which is such a you know such a luxury. You know, with the expense accounts, you know, nothing didn't matter. Just go for the story, Afghanistan, Israel, wherever the story was. And then I felt like I felt like my, my career and my life, the difference between them was, you know, there wasn't like a fine dividing line, especially at that time. I was young. I didn't I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. And so, like, not only did I feel like my career crashed, I felt like my whole life didn't. So I was like that scene in the movie where I'm a little like wondering if I'm what if I'm I'm a journalist. I have no skills. All I can do is <laughs> I got I can't do anything, you know. <laughs> I got no skills at all. I just listen to people talk to me and I just write it down. I mean, it's all I got. And uh, if I if you take that away from me, like, what am I going to do? I'm like going to go pie at McDonald's. I don't know. <laughs> um, and uh, so was there panic? You know, absolutely. You know, and then and so I get this like, you know, call out of the blue that what seems like the most unbelievable coincidence, unbelievable sort of like. You know, I don't use this word lightly, like sort of, uh, sort of like, you know, gift from God or like some challenge from the heavens or like some, it seemed beyond luck. It seemed like fate, like, shh, I got to follow this. I got to, you know, like, I'm, you know, you can take away my job, but you can't take away my journalistic instincts. And I was just like, this is, you know, I have to see where this goes. And so I was, I fell into this hole and, uh. You know, and it was a psychopath on the other end, you know, at the other end, at the bottom of it. And so it was a very weird experience. And I, you know, Stranger in the Woods is a much more relaxing read. But if you are interested in a little mind screwing, you know, if you want to read something creepy but weird and true, then, you know, true story might be the one for you. It depends upon what kind of person you are. Yeah, <laughs> it's a, it, I think that's a fairly accurate way of putting it. Um, it's like, it, even even kind of you know knowing kind of how everything fleshes out and that even with the knowledge and again i don't want to give it away for people who are listening who want to kind of follow up on this uh, after they've heard it but like is it so cause you kind of touched on it and saying like in a weird way you have to be thankful to this guy as much as that is a, a kind of an uneasy feeling for you but i mean like it, it plays such a big part in kind of your your redemption so to speak that it's impossible to ignore is it something that like have you have you talked to um longo at all in the aftermath of kind of the film or the book or or anything like that or is it kind of like once you were done with him you were done with him 
Um, I think that's an excellent question. So the hermit, Chris Knight, he's the one who told me to go away, and I would love to get another letter from him one day, but I don't expect to. He's a true hermit. He told me what he wanted to tell me. Now, Chris Knight was almost the opposite. And I think of the two men as having almost nothing in common, except that I wrote about both of them. You know, Mm. once, you know, there's no question who's the gentle soul. Well, Chris Longo, the psychopathic murderer, you know, was the opposite of Chris Knight. He couldn't stop talking. And he was a very brilliant talker. And I think, again, you know, saying like the fact that he was guilty doesn't give away anything. The book is about how did he try and convince me that he wasn't? And how did I realize that he was? And what did I do when I realized that? And how did he, you know, what happened to him in court? Did he, was he, what did, did he find out in court? Like how, what happened and how did I confront him? That's the, all the, that's to me is the true, like sort of uh, momentum of the book. It's not, you know, if he did, it's like, how did this all, like, how did, how, how did the ultimate liar, you know, get caught by the, you know, journalist looking for redemption and it's really unpredictable and tricky. Um, so yeah, even after the book and the movie, you know, Chris Longo is like this. It's it's hard to explain. I wish you know. I don't wish. I'm glad we can't. But he was on the phone. You would sort of understand, like you know, my. So if you're in prison in the United States, you can't. I can't call him. He can mm-hmm. only call me. Collect meaning I pay the bill, and. Um, you know, I have caller ID and I would see this in, you know, it says inmate phone when, uh, when you get a call from prison in the United States and I would see this inmate phone and I would feel this, this is after the book and after the movie. And I feel this is crazy internal tug of war where part of me feels like complete revulsion. Like I got three beautiful children sleeping upstairs and this guy murdered his three children. They were little kids. They were all under age eight. And Jeez. And then I'm like, I'm completely revolted. And then there's like, what the fuck is he going to say to me now? And I'll pick up the goddamn phone because I'm yeah, twisted. And he'll say something like, Mike, you know, don't you, you know, I'm locked in a cage for the rest of my, he has no hope of ever getting out. In fact, he's on death row. He may not get put to death. It depends upon what will happen with the death penalty in the United mm. States. But he's locked in a tiny box in what's called a super max cell with 30 other men who are never going to get out again. And he says to me something like, you want to know what we do for recreation? Well, you want to know how we celebrate Christmas? Want to know what we do for dinner parties? Oh my God. I'm like, yeah, I kind of do, man. I really do. Like it's fascinating and creepy. And I'm happy to say, So, like, you know, I would fall into another damn hole. I'm like, all right, yeah, tell me. That's kind of interesting. Like, here's, like, a person who's now living, like, you know, that Chris Knight lived completely alone in the woods. I wanted to know what that felt like. And here's a dude locked for, like, what is it really like on death row? And, I mean, you might, some of your audience member might say, I don't really care how the psychopath lives. But I'm like, yeah, what do you do for dinner parties? (laughs) I was like, like what is going on there? Like, here's a guy who's super intelligent and writes really well and is a psychopath but is reporting to me on like these interesting insights that like I have a, I ha- a journalist's dream of having like a, you know an inside look at a place that very few people would ever want to look at you know but uh, anyway uh, finally uh, I actually took a sabbatical from the United States here I'm speaking to you from France and I left the country about two years ago the United States and uh, you can't make a call from jail internationally so I haven't spoken to Chris Longo in more than two years, and I'm really happy about that because he's, <laughs> it's an unhealthy thing. Did, did, uh, that's not to say I'll never talk to him again, but I'm glad we haven't talked. Yeah. Did, did we ever find out his motives? 
Excuse me? Did we ever find um, out his motives why he killed his family? Uh, I mean, yeah. But it seems like, uh, you know, it's like I told you Chris Knight left the world just because he felt this internal tug and stayed because he was happy. Well, Chris Longo was here's where like you know you, you, you sometimes when you read a true story when especially the the book and not the movie you sort of get into this it, he, he was a liar chris longo and he married this sort of beautiful girl she was a couple of years older than him and sort of like this great beauty that he like felt completely obsessed with and um they had three children before he was like 25 years old and he just wanted this woman to think that he was the greatest businessman, biggest success ever. And he started this business and actually it was pretty successful for a while. And then like most new businesses, you have your ups and downs and he was having a real tough time. And like his, the car broke down and you know, he's been telling the wife how successful he is. And she's like, you know, the car broke down and he's like, don't worry, honey, I'll get you a new car. And that doesn't seem like a great rift but the truth is he couldn't afford one and he didn't know what to do, but he never wanted this woman to think negative, negatively of him. And he stole a car in an ingenious way, by the way, which is like, you know, if you ever want to learn how to steal a car, read the book. I'm not going to give it away, <laughs> but he was great. Uh, and from that moment, which isn't a small thing, stealing a car, but from that moment of just instead of telling his wife, you know, honey, oh, the business is having a rough patch and, you know, we're going to have to live with one car, get a beater for a little while. Like instead of just being honest, he told her everything was great. And from that moment to the day he killed her and her children, he was pretending he was living a lie and he was getting closer and closer and closer to being discovered. And rather than ever coming clean, he kept doubling down and doubling down and doubling down until he finally got up to the point where his family would realize that he was a complete fraud and a complete sham and had been, they'd been living a lie for close to eight years by this point, 10 years, like he'd been lying wow. or, and he was, it's, it's called this narcissistic wound that a psychopath has. Like he never wanted his family to find out that he was a lie. And instead of committing suicide or something like that, he killed them. Jeez. So they would never know. It's creepy. And I get all goosebumpy when I talk about it, but we're not psychopaths. You guys aren't psychopaths. I'm Thankfully. not psychopath. <laughs> That's not the way I think. You know, I'll be tell my wife, shit, honey, I'm, I screwed up. The business isn't going well. And she'll be like, yeah, that stuff happens in life, you know. But, like, he could never do that. Jeez. And um, I know, I know, it, I know. I don't want to get all political, but I sometimes see stuff like that in, like, the current president of the United States, to tell you the truth. Oh, stop, yeah, stop, yeah. yeah. Jesus, man. <laughs> That's a different <laughs> story. Never admit. I mean, it's not going to kill. It's not going to kill anyone. But still, like I sometimes, you can admit you're wrong every once in a while. It's not the end of the world. In fact, people respect you. Anyway, I'm yeah. not going to take politics. <laughs> but, uh, that's, that's, did you ever? Did you ever speak um, after after writing um, Stranger in the Woods and, and and True Story and then the movie coming out? Did you ever speak to your former employers again? Did you gain any of the respect that you lost? At the New York Times, yeah. So um, it's been a long time. I was that was two thousand and one, so that was like sixteen years ago. Um, you know, and I'm and I'm happy to say that uh, you know you can have a second chance if you if you really work at it. Like uh, I have to say that you know even though these stories that we've been talking about are quite extraordinary, like I didn't just hire a fact checker. Like I hired two independent fact checkers, and I had like everything in my book. I wanted you to you know. You know, I, 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 some people don't like 
to be fact checked, but I was like, please, no, check harder, check harder, you know, check everything, triple check it. You know, if you're, and if I was 99% sure of something, I cut it out of either book, like it wasn't good enough. And so, you know, I wanted the, the, the stories that I, that I wrote are like as clean as they could possibly be. And I worked for 16, you know, years to be, to redeem myself and, 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 you know, in, in this way where I felt like I had to be more careful than any other journalist because there is not going to be any forgiveness a second time. And um, I'm happy to say that, you know, I'm always happy when humans tend to show their good side. And, and I, you know, I haven't written for The New York Times again, but to tell you the truth, I have been invited to. I just haven't, haven't, haven't done that yet. I haven't gone there. But uh, people have been extremely forgiving. It sometimes took a decade or more. But uh, I've been... Um, you know, I have a black mark on my record and always will, but, uh, you know, that's, that's life. But people have been, I've been ex extremely well received back into the sort of community of journalists. Excellent. It's good to hear that. And I suppose when the, the caliber of work you're producing, I mean, the, you know, the, 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 the stories aside, even the, the, you won an award for a piece of National Geographic as well. So, um, your redemption story is, is well and truly evident anyway. Um, thanks a lot to guys like you too who are just interested in this and I appreciate it and uh, you know I really do it's like it, I'm not uh, some journalists can come off as extremely full of themselves but I have been humbled you know um, you know in the biggest way and so I am truly grateful for even your attention and for like you know just discussing this it means a lot to me there's a lot of books out there and the fact that you've chosen some of mine I'm really you know very grateful no no well i mean th thanks man for taking the time to to, to tell us more well, about them and, and and this has been a brilliant brilliant interview I've, yeah so, thanks so much for your time the, I, I know um you, you tried to call us on video and i'm almost wishing that we had video uh in here because our faces during <laughs> yeah. this most of the time our, our mouths were open and we were just shaking our head at each other like we we're basically saying shit. what the fuck <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well i i did babble on a lot but i have to thank you guys also when you know i've done a lot of like drive time radio where i literally have three minutes and uh we've discussed both these books in three minutes and i can't tell you how unsatisfying that yeah, feels no, no, and no. how grateful i am to you for letting me run my mouth off uh like it's been I brilliant so thank you yeah so no much. it's it's been absolutely brilliant and you, you know where we are if you ever venture over to ireland mike okay yeah that's what i was gonna say yeah if ever you, you end up in ireland um touch base with us and we'll bring you for points and we'll we'll have more of these stories because they're absolutely brilliant man genuinely i had one of the most beautiful road trips of my life i drove all around ireland uh you know luckily you know when i'm a little buzzed i drive on the incorrect side of the road and, <laughs> 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 we won't talk about that but, just, but uh it would be my absolute pleasure really thank you and i hope uh, you'd have me on again when my when i when i write my next book well, absolutely absolutely and funny enough that was that was going to be my next question before we we let you go because i appreciate it, it's 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 late enough over in france um have you any plans for what's next or are you working on anything or are you kind of keeping your ear out for the next big story or what's happening i mean just a slight tease it's just at the beginning of a long process but i have uh been in touch with an art thief a person who steals pieces <laughs> of artwork from museums and what i might the be fuck? i know yes. this is a good <laughs> so we'll just see how it goes stay tuned absolutely yeah well, that's unbelievable <laughs> have you got another hour to tell us about this one <laughs> next time guys next time um and if people want to 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 learn more about you or follow you on social media or your website or whatever mike where can they find you 
My name is, uh, you know, Michael Finkel, a nice rhymy name. You could catch my uh, website at michaelfinkel.com. And you'll feel free to send me a note. Um, I'm super slow at responding, but I read everything that's written to me and I respond to it all. You know, if it takes a couple of weeks, it does. But michaelfinkel.com and, you know, there's the Twitter and the Facebook and all that stuff. But I would just say, you know, if you really want to, if anything I said to you, out there sort of was like wow i want to see what that is you know take a look at the stranger in the woods a true story read the first page if you like it read the second page and don't stop if until you don't like it you know that's all i have to say (laughs) great note to end on mike it has been our pleasure thank you so much for joining us man really really appreciate it danny and graham my pleasure as well thanks a lot great thank you that was awesome mike finkel ladies and gentlemen (laughs) Wow. <laughs> I love him every now and again when we get interviews. And there always seem to be the Skype ones where we're kind of going, what the fuck? Yeah. Like, we're kind yeah. of signed to each other. Like, and we're sitting back. I love when the guest just talks and talks and talks. And we can sit back as if we're listening to an interview on the radio. Amazing. Unbelievable. Genuinely. Um, what about his new project? I know. The Active. I, I cannot wait for it. Like, what I mean, the fuck? Imagine he ended up talking to the RT from prison as well. Yeah, I would not be surprised. Like, honestly, what a nice bloke as well. Just yeah. a genuinely nice, nice bloke. Um, yeah, lads, look, you've heard yourself there what the stories are about. Go and check out either of the books. Um, watch the film, but but as Mike said, the, the book will give you more, obviously. So um, have a look on his website. I think you can order books through the website or you'll get them in a bookshop or, or Amazon we'll, or we'll whatever. We'll tag Mike anyway in, in when we yeah. release this on but, um, Sunday. Well, well, I'm genuinely thrilled with that. that thrilled with that interview. So yeah. much better than, than I thought. Like Because I was kind of, in my head, I was like, oh, it's a little bit late in France and yeah. he probably had a long day. Oh, he gave us energy. Boy, he, yeah, he was he, top He top was brilliant. Um, that's it for 118. I forgot to ask him, was he anything to uh, do with Howard Finkel, the former WWF <laughs> ring, annu- ring announcer. You can tweet him. You can yeah. tweet him and ask him. Imagine he was. I'll ask him when he comes over for a for few a, points. For a few scoops, yeah. Um, but yeah, lads, that's it for WTS 118. Thanks very much for listening. Don't forget, you can check out all our previous on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Podbean, Podcast Republic, anywhere and everywhere. There's a podcast. Just search WTS Pod and we're there. And have a listen to our live show from last week. Yeah, we're going to keep plugging that one. Um, it was a great show. And again, thanks to anybody who turned up on the night. And um, thanks to Dublin Podcast Festival, the inaugural Dublin Podcast Festival, for inviting us along. It was great to be a part of it. Um, but yeah, great. Uh, of course, Fitzpatrick Castle for putting a roof over our heads to patrickcastle.com. Don't forget to check that out. Twitter at WTSPod, Facebook.com for us. But Ireland. You're at Daniel Murray. I'm at Marigamania. This has been WTS 118 with the amazing Michael Fingal. Until next week. Clear oils. Full hearts. And lose. Too sweet. <laughs>